Hello, and welcome to the spectacle. My name is Luther Abel, and I'm here with Aubrey. Aubrey, how are you today? I'm doing well. Um, so because Scott is out this week, Luther and I will be taking over the spectacle and guest hosting it for this week. Um, I am a recent graduate from Hillsdale. I'm the ISI um, Intercollegiate Studies Institute Fellow at the American Spectator. Been writing here for about three months now. It's been an awesome experience. Um, Luther, if you want to introduce yourself as well. Yes. So my name is Luther Ray Abel, coming to you from Wisconsin. Uh, Navy vet of six years. I was a mechanic there. Moved around West Coast, East Coast, three deployments. Got out of the Navy, Lawrence University. Uh, then I became a National Review fellow. And now I'm here as an associate editor at the American Spectator. Just kind of figuring things out, trying not to upset too many people uh, with, with middling success as of today's article. But, uh, you know, you got to come in with a bang and have people know who you are right off the bat. Um, and so it's been a blast uh, working with the interns over the summer and now looking to write a little more full-time. So I expect you'll see both of our names in print uh, quite often. And please do say hello in the comments section when you do uh, see one of our articles. So Aubrey, what's going on in the world? Um, there's multiple things. Um... We could start with any number of them. Uh, yesterday, a Spanish newspaper, Jesuit newspaper, published a piece about, um, it's essentially a transcript of Pope Francis's comments to a community of Jesuits in Portugal that he made while he was there over World Youth Day. And it's kind of received um, a lot of backlash, especially in the traditional Catholic um, community. I know J.D. Vance at Pillar talked about it. Um, he, uh, the, the comments were relatively negative. Pope Francis's, um, opinion of Americans is, he doesn't, he doesn't have the best opinion of them. Um, even though he's, as J.D. Vance pointed out, he's only been here for about six days total. Um, <laughs> apparently has come to some conclusions. Um, essentially he targeted, um, Catholics who look back and adhere to what he called ideologies and he, he didn't call any names or necessarily point any fingers um, but it seems pretty clear I think to most people that he was talking to traditional Catholics um, which as a traditional Catholic myself is I mean part for the course for Francis uh, but also it, it doesn't always come across um, like he's very supportive of faithful Catholics. So I don't know. I, as somebody on the inside, I took it very somewhat personally. Um, but Luther, you're on the outside. So. Yeah. So as a Protestant, as one might guess from my name, uh, <laughs> I, I'm predisposed to dislike the Pope just on principle. Um the great devil in Rome or whatever Martin Luther called him. But uh, I have over time developed quite a respect for 
the institution that the Roman Catholic Church is and the consistency of it over the well millennium at this point, uh, growing up in an evangelical church, there's just a lot of nonsense and um, individualism in theology and Protestantism, where there's constant fracture that just isn't permitted in Roman Catholicism, where there is the orthodoxy and uh, there are standards held, and then there are there is excommunication, maybe at the most extreme levels. Uh, but really, it just comes down to standards, where we know where everyone should be, what is correct and what is incorrect, because we have centuries of uh, of thought on every subject that man has ever encountered. And so a part of me is quite envious of the Catholic Church in that instance, uh, because I think Protestantism falls into, um, is seduced by cult of personality. You see this a lot in, I would say, megachurch culture, where there is a magnetic preacher, uh, typically of <laughs> wealthier persuasion, um, who convinces his flock of things that are just are unbiblical. Um, and so that's frustrating to me to see those failures and then to see another uh, Christian denomination practice that has rebuffed that sort of thinking. So all of that to say, with the Pope, I don't know. Um, it's a little tough because he speaks another language. And that, I mean, that's obvious. Right. Yeah, I that too. But we, we're always understanding him through translation. And that's uh, difficult. Uh, and even, even Spanish, which is, I think, arguably a simpler language, there are all sorts of implications in how one conveys oneself in Spanish that unless treated correctly and delicately will mean all sorts of things in English that perhaps the Pope did or did not intend. And so those of us who are more given to assume the worst um, will of course grasp those. While those who would defend him, his apologists would say, no, that's of course not what he meant at all. And so I, I don't really know. Uh, what to think of him, except to go to the Catholics that I know in America and say, what's going on, Aubrey? <laughs> and I'll, <laughs> I'll take your word for it because I don't know what else to do. Yeah, I mean, like in this case, it's just, it's a great instance to remember that like Catholics do not in fact believe that the Pope is infallible at all times. Um, and in some ways that gives us, I mean, that gives the church a lot of grace when a pope delivers his opinion or, you know, makes comments that are difficult. And, and Francis is famous for doing this, not not making, I mean, he's famous for making all sorts of comments, but specifically things that are just confusing. It's like, wait, what did you mean by that? Could you clarify? And he as, tends to not clarify, um, which hasn't been a great thing in the past. It's caused a lot of, it's caused a lot of fighting in between you know american and 
um, American and like the American clergy in the Vatican in the past, um, and even across, I think, portions of Europe as well. Oh, I mean, just things like, I mean, you said, you know, same sex, you're not going to judge same sex unions. That's a little confusing because the church does, you know, condemn those as part of its dogma. And, you know, like that's one of the more famous examples. So I, I would argue it's less that this is less confusing. He doesn't come out and say that, you know, traditional Catholics are a problem, but he said that before. So it wouldn't be anything new. Um, and honestly, I've, I've always had this thought with like, when the Pope is, you know, saying these kinds of things, it's, um, <laughs> the American response is never going to be like, oh yes, you know, you're, you, you're, you know, criticizing us. We're going to respond well to criticism. We're going to, you know, shape up, um, the American response is generally speaking more like, you know, we're, we're being persecuted by the higher authorities, which means it's all the more reason to like go and do that thing. Right? A very American response. Exactly. <laughs> like maybe that's part of what's feeding into like his disdain or dislike of Americans. Although I don't know why, because I feel like the, the same is true in, you know, South America, but it's like, th this is probably the wrong tactic to take with the American church in general, you know. They're, so they're going... I, I don't know if you're allowed to even say, but if you could pick the continent from which the next Pope would arrive in Rome, is there a certain figure in the church that you would favor over others or how does that uh... um i mean obviously the decision isn't mine to make it's the cardinals but like i i would argue that um eastern europe specifically like hungary or poland again i mean like we had john paul ii from there they're great or he was great sorry um and then, like yeah, I, I would argue that Europe is probably the best spot, but I have also heard really like there are really great African bishops and it's quite possible that the next Pope could come from there. And if he does, like there's a very good chance that, that the papacy could go in a very good direction with that. Um, I think in some ways the African Catholic Church is, I mean, it's being persecuted right now. I just had a piece, I think last week about uh, persecution in Nigeria and I think that, that that like conflict creates a much more raw and honestly a, a much deeper faith. Like that Pope isn't going to be as concerned with like minute theological details as more like, you know, he'll be he'll be more concerned with like this is, you know, the Catholic Church that I've come to love, that I like believe in very deeply, that's being persecuted. And I, I think that that'll make for a stronger papacy. Um, yeah, I don't know. There's a good argument to be made. I highly doubt that the Cardinals would ever pick an American Pope. And I'm not sure I would ever want an American Pope. That would just be It weird. just feel wrong? <laughs> it just feel wrong. It's like, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's been like a solid 200 years since we were a missionary country. But <laughs> it still kind of feels that way. 
And uh, is it Cardinal Robert Barron who was out uh, in Bishop Bishop Barron? Bishop Bishop, Bishop Barron. You wouldn't think you wouldn't consider him as the next pope. I I don't know. He would do a fairly good job of trying, I think, to appease everybody, uh, which might not be the kind of man we need mm. in the pontifical seat. He's very ecumenical. Ecumenical. I can use English today. I promise. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So I, I personally think we need somebody who comes out, you know, a little more fire and brimstone than Bishop Barron will probably ever. Okay. <laughs> so you need a, a converted Baptist is what you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> sure. <laughs> Who went through RCIA? Is that the program to yeah, um, yep. yeah be brought into the church? Hmm. Cool. What else? What else, Aubrey? Well, the other big, I think the other big topic obviously was your piece that came out today, um, which is Tuesday, is when we're recording this on Trump as Melissa's typing up a response furiously as <laughs> i can hear the tic tacking in the background and i'm <laughs> afeard she said to um well listeners will understand melissa when i say this she warned me to gird my loins in preparation for for her response to my piece so to if i may go over my piece briefly uh my argument is sort of a response to Scott McKay and Melissa talking about uh, the debate last week and whether Nikki Haley's um, strength on the stage was either preachy, screechy, or just the thing we might need. And as I argue, the thing that will bring independence, especially in the suburbs, suburban women, uh, back to the Republican Party uh, as they've been fleeing in rising numbers uh, ever since 2016. And so I think when we watch these Republican primaries, we do need to keep in mind that eventually whoever we select will be going on a stage against Joe Biden, maybe, if he actually shows up, which they might have to cart him out Who's to say? Uh, there are, there but, are other possibilities. Gavin but presumably, <laughs> Joe Biden is going to be on the stage with the Republican candidate at some point. And I think Nikki Haley is an excellent counter to him in background, in appearance, in energy, in mental capacity. She's just a sharp woman all around. And so it's not to say she has to be the selection, but when I watched the debate, that's what I saw, was that she could go after anybody on that stage and pummel most of those guys into submission. Now, that might be off-putting to some, but she's not, she is Southern polite without being deferential or passive. And I think that is an especially 
attractive uh, sort of candidate going forward. So Scott was saying that uh, perhaps she wasn't what we needed and that Vivek and his boss Trump are going to are going to win. Uh, and <laughs> that's fair enough, though Trump has just ticked under 50% in the polling. He's still the most likely to win the nomination. Now, I do think his numbers are still inflated because of how much he's being persecuted by left wing prosecutors. And I argue in the piece that Trump should have never gotten to this point in that he should have been impeached on January 7th and removed from office. But because Congress was weak and didn't do what they should have done in the first place, they opened the door to the stupidity you see happening now with him indicted in multiple states, multiple courts, and all sorts of political rancor occurring that shouldn't have. And that, I argue, comes from weakness already in 2020. And it could have been avoided. But of course, that's not what we got. Instead, we got the worst outcome, which is politi politically charged uh, prosecutions that have just enough on their side to not be thrown out, but not enough to win the day. They're just going to go on and on forever, and we're all going to suffer. So we have that to look forward to over the next year. I mean, the worst possible outcome is probably that we get a Trump-Biden ticket again, or like a Trump versus Biden election, which would just be, it'd be like Groundhog Day, but slightly worse um, <clears throat> this time. Um, I see, I honestly, Nikki Haley kind of dro drove me nuts in the debate. Like, I felt like she was being, she was pulling the like victim feminist card a little bit too much. Like women are better than men kind of thing. And that kind of irritated me. Um, yeah, I like Vivek is a little too smooth. I don't really like that. There was nobody really great on the stage. Ron DeSantis needs to be a little bit more fiery. He's just kind of meh. Yeah, and we agreed. We were running the live blog, and we didn't think he did all that great. But I the yeah. post-debate polling worked in his favor, I think, because people were starting to get worried about him. Yeah. And then they saw him on the debate stage, and he hit what he needed to, which was, I'm a really good governor who stuck up for my state during COVID in a way that no other governor really did. And that's what a lot of people needed to hear. So it either reaffirmed what people already thought about him or maybe even attracted others. And he stayed out of the kind of petty scrums that were happening on the other side of the stage. Or uh, over the top of his head in the case of Pence and <laughs> Right, yeah, he just like, had to step, like back, step back or duck. <laughs> <laughs> that was that was intense they didn't really like i think there was like one shot like that fox got where like the two are debating and DeSantis is just kind of sitting in the middle but um they really should have played that up a little bit more with the camera angles in my personal opinion 
Yeah, and then there was that one video of DeSantis giving his pitch and uh, Vivek had, he was like fluttering his hand just yeah. in in DeSantis's eyeline. <laughs> it's like, this guy, he has done debate before. Uh, oh, and sure yeah. enough, he's yeah, a lot of experience in debate club and all of that, but getting inside your opponent's head with whatever's available to you. Uh, Yes, Just as you like said, smooth dude. Smiles probably. I'm mean, like, I think it irritated a lot of people watching, but I'm. My guess is it probably also irritated the candidates. Like he's just sitting there, like he's like your little brother. Yes. He knows he's gonna you. <laughs> yeah. I yeah. And so we were talking about him earlier this morning, and to I, I even said to criticize my piece the thing is it's not trump versus everybody it's trump and vivek versus everybody and so i think yeah. one could argue that when looking at polling you should combine the vivek and trump numbers together which puts trump at about 57 percent uh, and so there's still a long way for him to fall before he becomes really exposed um what do you think is the possibility that like trump gets the primary and then vivek ends up as like vp well that's the question because who will want to work for trump in a, a second trump administration uh he's I mean, not vivek totally would. <laughs> vivek. he might he might he's already i mean he's oh, he almost says as much like he's promised to pardon the guy like he's definitely not putting any distance between himself and trump Right. And then they would become a presidency almost, almost certainly of only owning the executive branch with the Congress either split or soft blue, something to that effect. So nothing would get done. It'd be, yeah. It would, it would just sit there. We'd sit there for four years and it would be insane. Um, possibly hilarious there's always <laughs> there's always that like, it credit where do both of those guys are entertaining if one forgets for a second that they're supposed to be running the free world um <laughs> but yes the the press conferences would be legendary uh, and maybe we would deserve them right yeah, I, I don't know. It would, it would definitely make it for an interesting world. I think there's a pretty good chance that Trump gets nominated. I I think he might be able to win if he doesn't get disqualified, which I've seen some political arguments saying that you could disqualify him under certain constitutional, like, clauses or articles. Um, yeah, the, the was it, 14th. Like, like 14th article three yeah and i looked into that and it it just doesn't hold up okay uh, there's no way to disqualify trump uh the idea was more that uh former confederates leading leading a charge onto capitol hill to take over the government and trump was in no way doing something like that right he, he had to be the most active participant with the flag in his hand, the the MAGA flag kicking over lecterns and stuff. 
and he was chilling at the White House watching cable news. Uh, so I I don't think that holds up. That's wish casting from liberals and then some right. on the right, the anti-Trump wing. Uh, I don't see with Trump at 41% approval how he could win because I think there's probably 30 to 40% of the party that will simply refuse to vote for him. It, it just went too far. Uh, but when Biden's right there at 41% approval too, the question is open. Right, right. You can't well, say it, it would, would or would not happen because there's so many question marks. Uh, probably most of all that you aren't sure whether Trump or Biden would health-wise make it to 2025. That's, that's a long time when you're in your late 70s, early 80s. Um, For Biden especially. I mean, I think it's likely that Trump will make it health-wise. It'll be interesting to see. I think it'll really depend on how the next, you know, three or four trials go, whatever ends up happening in the spring. Because, like, I mean, three of the trials are scheduled for, like, in, you know, in the next eight months. It's like two in March and one in May, and then we're still waiting on the Georgia one to be um, scheduled. But she's, all, I mean, the judge in that case is also looking earlier rather than later. So it's all yeah, going to This is the Fulton down County right case. Sorry, what? This is the Fulton County yeah. case. Yeah. And I mentioned this morning that um, my frustration, one of these hearings, I believe the one in D.C., is scheduled for the day before Super Tuesday. And there was something similar to this when the Wisconsin Supreme Court primary was occurring, where the Mar-a-Lago raid happened the day before that primary occurred. And there seemed to be a serious reaction in favor of the Trumpier of the Supreme Court nominees because of the proximity of what what seemed to enough GOP voters as an abuse of federal power. And so even though the polling had it more 50-50, the... uh, the more Trump-aligned candidate won quite handily and then went on to lose by 11 points. Mm. And I worry that with the publicity of the Trump trial occurring the day before Super Tuesday, he may get support that he otherwise would not have earned simply because there are enough Republican voters who, I mean, quite rightly, are incensed that he's being dragged through the ringer uh, right. in a way that looks absolutely political, like nakedly political. No, I mean, like, it, it's totally political. It's it's obvious election interference. As It is interesting to note that the, the left and the Democrats definitely want Trump to be the nominee just as much as I think the right, well, some members of the right, you know, want Trump to be the nominee. It's kind of interesting that those, you know, those goals align. And you do wonder, like, 
clearly they think they can beat him in a, you know, national election. So. They think, they hope, and we don't know. (laughs) (laughs) It is the ultimate crystal ball business. And we get to write about it every step of the way. And sometimes we're even right, which is kind of fun. Uh, And then sometimes we have to write, well, maybe something didn't (laughs) pan out exactly as I wanted it to. Uh, Yeah, it'll be interesting. We just don't know. Early, Early states, Iowa, New Hampshire, seem to be much more sympathetic to a um, a DeSantis candidacy. But again, just because the first couple states might lean his way doesn't mean the next will. And it also might mean that a, a bunch of voters who would prefer a Tim Scott or a Nikki Haley stack up behind DeSantis when they see which way the wind is blowing. Uh, but until that happens, we can't discuss it because it's a matter of the heart as much as the mind when it comes to uh, strategically voting and primaries. Right, right. And I mean, the primary race is far from even like nearly decided. It's very early to like be, you know, everything's decided it's going to work out just so. We have no idea. <laughs> yeah. So that's great. <laughs> <laughs> Make all sorts of predictions and then get proven wrong. But that one time we're proven right, we will harp on that for at least three or four articles worth because people oh, yeah. need to know just how much we knew it from the beginning. <laughs> uh, so I, I guess uh, I'll just ask, what are you... Um, Plenty to do with your Labor Day weekend. Um, I will be moving into a new apartment, which is exciting. I'm moving to Columbus um, with a friend. So, yeah, pretty much just that. It's the whole process. That's where the Buckeyes are located, Ohio State? Yes, unfortunately. (laughs) (laughs) I think I'll still be like 20 minutes from the stadium or whatever. Well, have fun with that. I um, I spend most Labor Day weekends trying to figure out a clever way to get back at the syndicalists and socialists that gave us Labor Day in the first place. But it always seems kind of mean-spirited in the end. So I just enjoy the extra day off. Uh, we go up to the cottage and there's, uh, for 20 years, we've had a fundraiser for the uh, the first responders up there and we have an auction and so people bring food items and maple syrup that they collect on their properties and i think last year we even auctioned off a hot tub of wow <laughs> well it was kind of a a, a redneck hot tub it came <laughs> from a uh, a pesticide dispensing tub that we then cleaned out I think it was more for jokes. We're going to go with that. Uh, hopefully those people are still with us and can come to the auction this year. Uh, <laughs> but because we're 45 minutes away from the nearest ambulance, the first responders are absolutely vital for the people in the area who are who trend older. 
And so we're just grateful for what they have. And so we typically raise anywhere between five and $10,000 a year, which I think is many times their usual budget. Um, so we get that to look forward to and then writing and all all that nonsense. But uh, yeah. before we leave, is there a, an article that you'd suggest to our readers to really be looking for or get after? Yeah, I mean, like kind of touching back on the Rome thing, Lou Aguilar had a great article yesterday or Monday, I guess, about, um, I think it's called like Cracks in the Rock of Peter or something. Anyway, it was just a really great like criticism of what's going on without being um, while still being respectful of the Catholic Church, which I really appreciate people who can, you know, call out the problems in Rome as they see them, but then also be like, you know, this is still the church. So respect it. And yeah. Yeah. What's the line Catholics love to say? The greatest proof of the church's legitimacy is are those who were called to be in charge of it or something to that effect. Whereas it's, 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 it's a like, long line of broken men, but nonetheless, the church has maintained and grown. Yeah, that's the effect of it. It's still here, despite people not because of them. Right. And as a bit of a Calvinist, I can get behind that. <laughs> Total depravity, but uh, God's <laughs> grace is enough. So the piece that I really liked uh, it comes from George M.J. Perry, titled The Non-Binary Athletic Category Hurts Female Athletics. I'm just talking about the biological differences between men and women. We talk about it all the time, but I think George does an excellent job of delineating that gray area that's been invented between men and women. And so you have men on estrogen and women on testosterone and these people should not be allowed in women's sport as an alternative or this this new category if it's going to exist it needs to be its own thing because of the advantage it, it offers runners and i don't know if you could give any oh, yeah. insight to that aubrey being a runner yourself yeah, I mean, I, I've i never competed like professionally or like, you know, in college or anything. I ran a race last year with the Air Force Marathon here in Dayton, Ohio, and uh, did pretty well. But I mean, yeah, no, the difference between men and women, like running times, for instance, is absolutely insane. Like, so my younger brother is 18, just went off to college and his run times are like he can, he can pull out, you know, a six minute mile with no training after, you know, three years of running, I still could not run a six minute mile or even, you know, remotely close. Um, that being said, I do train long distance, not short distance. He trains short. So there's some training differences, but like my average miling, you know, mileage is like 10 minute miles. <laughs> like it's crazy different. Um, and if I were to try to go short, it would still be like, you know, 7.15. And, but a minute difference in a race, even seconds difference in a race can be, you know, huge. And, you know, for somebody who's like jacked up on, you know, 
estrogen and you know claiming to be a woman but technically has you know has the benefit of having developed as a man and you know developed those muscles like yeah they're going to be way faster there's just no way around it it's ridiculous to think otherwise so i mean like the the transgender category is not going to be a level playing field like let's be honest the whole thing you know the the different trans athletes have had a very different you know biological history from one another they just have and but at least the women's you know athletics will be (laughs) more yeah it kind of answers the question what if we allowed a bunch of people to take performance enhancing drugs at varying levels uh and we find out that uh, it really helps actually (laughs) uh shocker that um it's the performance enhancing enhancing drugs you know category and they can go run and do whatever in that category and (laughs) we thank you all listeners for joining us here today uh please do go read those pieces if it uh so moves you and um for aubrey i'm luther thanks for listening thank you